Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masacha Yuma, daf Samach Zion, page 67. Except that our daf opens with a Mishnah that really begins at the very end of daf Samach Vav, page 66. Um, we are continuing in the process of the day, right? That's how this Masachet and this parak are built. And the idea is that we're going to encounter, you know, all of the events of the day of Yom Kippur. So this is now, we're going to, fo- I think, you know, before we followed what happens with the Kohen Gadol in the Kodesh Kodeshim, we are now following the goat and his um, driver, I guess, out into the wilderness. Um, so here's what happens. All of the, it says, the prominent residents, the the beloved people of Yerushalayim. So I don't know if that's a monetary thing or an accomplishment thing. It's a matter of privilege, however, to be one of the people who gets to escort the person who's leading the goat out to the wilderness. And they go out till they hit what's the sukkah, the first sukkah. But the sukkah here really means a booth, meaning in the original sense of booth, it doesn't mean a sukkah that is put up for the sukkah holiday, right? For the Sukkot holiday. It's, it's a, a, a station along the way. So they get to the first booth, and the idea is that this way the guy who's accompanying the goat can rest. You know, he's got to pause now and again. They're going out pretty far into the wilderness. And there's to the, and the way I know that it's pretty far is because we've got 10 um, booths that are set up from Yerushalayim with a distance of 90 ris. That's what it's called here. Tishim ris between them, meaning each step of the way. And the way we, and this is really takes us back to Erevin, um, where the idea is that here we've got, right, you've got a thing of a Shabbos, the Shabbat Tchum of 12 meal, right? And then the idea is that we have to make something that the, these are 90 reese, which are going to be less than that. But at the same time, um, the area that they're going to is not somewhere that people would really ever go to on Shabbat or Chag other than the fact that they're taking the goat out there, right? These are not booths that were in use, you know, for, as a way station, except for this particular day. All right, so the, that's the distance between them. Shiva lechol meal. So there's seven and a half reese for each meal. The ha- I, I, It's not clear to me exactly how this math works out because I can't do it all in my head. If I'd written it down, it would have been much clearer for me to present it right now. But basically the idea is, and I'm sure that many of the people following along can do this yourselves, right? If you end up saying that um, seven and a half reefs are in a meal, and you're going to times that by 12, right, to get to the sum total of the maximum distance that you could have, right, then then that's how far that's how far that we can go. So then it's as opposed the 90 meal, um, no, I'm sorry, the 90 reefs is not a problem for going beyond 12. That's all I'm saying. Because it ends up, right, seven times... 12 would end up being 84 plus the halves along the way. Um, okay. I'll call Sukkah Sukkah Omrino. Each time they would come to each booth, they would say, Hare Mazon, Vare Maim. There'd be people there, you know, at each station. And they would say, Here's food, here's water if you need it. Now, let's think about how remarkable of an offer that is, because this is the day of Yom Kippur. And, you know, for all that this is an actual, an active task. Right, going out into the wilderness on what might be a very sunny, warm day. Maybe you really, maybe he really does need food and water. But you would think that there would be an effort here 
to encourage him to keep fasting, let's say, right? And instead, I, you know, here there's a real recognition that he is doing the the need of the entire people and he has to stay in, in good shape, meaning he has to be okay physically. So they offer him food and water. Um, and then they would escort him from one place to the next, from each station to the next. Except for that last one. At the last booth, he goes to he goes by himself, meaning there's no crowd watching of this last event, right? The last event meaning pushing the goat off the cliff, right? It's which is again a really interesting to me. It's really interesting, and it seems entirely appropriate and and in exactly in line of the ethos that I want to know, right? Where people are accompanying him to to help him and to encourage him and to cheer him on as needed. And I'm sure it was, you know, kind of a, a badge of their own honor to be able to be there. But at the end, we're going to revert to modesty, meaning this is not a spectator sport. This is a sacrifice, even if it's not on the Mizbeach, it is still part of an avoda that is, you know, redeeming the people, bringing them atonement. And it's not for the gawking, right? It's not It's not an event to be gawked at, to be, spec, to be spectator sport. It's not. Rather, right? So he's gonna the the last people there stand. They stand at a distance to observe the the guy who's with the goat. They're observing, you know, as a precaution, I guess, to make sure he's doing it right. Can you imagine if that guy says, you know what, I really like this goat. Let's take him away and keep him. Mahayosa. So then, what happens? What does this guy do? The one who's with the goat. What is his job here? lashon ben this is where we get into the, Yordina, you've warned us about this, that we're getting into the really graphic. Yeah, this, um, this is the Mishnah I've been referring to. <laughs> it's the graphic vision of what's going to happen to this goat, right? So they they take a strip of crimson, right? The crimson fabric, I guess. They divide it into half of it is tied to a rock. Half of it is tied between the horns of the goat. He pushes the goat backwards, and it it you know stumbles, rolls backward, and and falls down, meaning but down the cliff. And here we get literally torn limb, limb from limb. Right, this is exactly what's happening. By the time he's halfway down, the goat, by the time the goat is halfway down the mountain, it's torn limb from limb. So then the guy who has done this, he sits down in that last booth until it gets dark, and then he goes home, right? Meaning this is also an interesting question. Like, couldn't he go home and like, I don't know, get some hugs or something? I don't know. I'm being a little facetious, but like you would think that after this event, which is quite um, dramatic perhaps traumatic, I don't know, maybe it's not, if this is a regular thing and you know that it's the necessary part of the avoda, but I would think that at this point he would want some human company. And at this point is when he sits down in the booth, he's presumably still fasting or fasting again, and he waits there until it's dark, until the day is over. And then, and only then, does he leave and go home. So then the question is, the the mission rather, when are his garments considered impure. When does that happen? 
Rabbi Shimon Omer Mishat Dechiatolatzu. So either it's from the moment he leaves the walls of Jerusalem, right, or straight away he's already considered impure, his clothes are considered impure, or according to Rabbi Shimon, they're impure from the moment he pushes that goat off the cliff. And all the walk to get there, he was still in, in pure clothing. I find this to be, you know, an interesting addendum to the rest of the of the day, right? Till the point he goes home, we're talking literally about the schedule of the day. And then suddenly this question about his clothing, um, you know, is it's almost like a, I don't know, it's a distraction to me, right? What? Why are we talking about the clothing now? Uh, yeah, totally agree. It's a distraction. Um, but I think, you know, the reason why those clothes become tame is I wonder if it's because it is participants participating in a gruesome act. And so therefore, in a way, you sort of need to come out of that and, you know, transform from being tame to tahor. Yeah, I believe that. I accept that as a good, uh, a real explanation of what's just going on meaning it's not just that he just like waits until it's dark and then what then he goes home and the, and there's nothing as if there's nothing that happened that day um i just want to mention i'm going to turn this over to you in a minute yardina but i just wanted to mention the gemara talks about this business of the 90 wreaths and the 12 meal in much greater detail as you would expect and there's different opinions there's opinion of rabbi Meir and rabbi Yehuda and rabbi yosef and then the opinion of rabbi lazar ben rabbi yosef rabbi yosef and basically, the question of, you know, is exactly from Jerusalem to that cliff, how how far do you have and what kind of stops are there along the way? So um, that's the first bit of the Gemara. And like, it basically outlines these four, four different opinions. Um, I'm not going to get into them, both in the interest of time, but also in the interest of not speaking about them in a very um, confused manner. Meaning, if you draw a picture of these little houses, little booths along the way, right? Meaning you could, or just, you know, draw a line and put an X at each point and you'll be able to see what what exactly the, how they divided them up, right? Because there's a question of you have nine booths and the distance is 10 mil or there are five booths and the difference, the distance is 10 mil. And then, you know, each one is leading along the way. And then the question is, did you need, according to Rabbi Yosibar, Rabbi Lezer, there's a discussion of the Eruv. And again, you'd have two booths for 10 meal. So if you do it yourself, right, draw this out on a paper with a, with dots for each, you know, lines for how long it is, mark off how big the distance is, how great the distance is, and then um, along the way, how often you have the boost. If you do this on, I don't know what, graph paper or something, or on a computer program when you can have, you can show how Levy Mayer's opinion takes a little bit further, right? The, the suggestion is that there's more stops along the way then let's say, for example, Rebbe Lezer, Rebbe Yosef, who's got just two stops because he's making a Reuven along the way, and it's a completely different visual um, if, you, if you could line it up that way. It's hard to talk about. It's very easy to represent in a, in a physical form. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think the whole process of this long walk on Yom Kippur uh, is not something we would, ex- it's nothing we would do in the way that we, um, you know, observe the holiday today. So it's just interesting to see sort of how this whole process actually took place. Um, yes, I think that's true. And I think I think it's part of, you know, we've been mentioning this along the way. I think, Yordana, you especially, this notion that our experience of Yom Kippur today is so dramatically different, not just in tone, in terms of 
uh, certainly Ashkenazim are much more somber um, than some of what we've seen here, but also the physicality of the day, meaning, listen, it's a physical day no, no matter what you do because you're removing your normal physical um, pleasures and so on. So the idea that you're not eating and you're not drinking and you're not wearing leather and no anointing and no bathing and all of this is it brings it home in a very physical way that this is a different kind of day. But th that kind of physicality has nothing on the intensive labors of the Kohen Gadol and on the intensity of this walk that he's, you know, hiking out to the wilderness. Right. Well, we just to me, it's not the Kohen Gadol, it's whoever the person is who, who accompanies it. Right. But I don't know. I'm saying both. I'm saying both right. both paths. So on the one hand, we've got the Kohen Gadol in the Kodesh Kodeshim doing these physical exertions with the sprinkling and the and the pouring and so on of the of the blood that's one very physical kind of act of the day, actions of the day and this guy the guy who doesn't ever get named who's walking out to the wilderness with the goat right this is a hike you know it's a hike to a place that people don't usually go even if they set up booths to to sustain him along the way right i, I totally agree now what i also liked about this stop is it's finally getting into the philosophical. I know I've been complaining the whole, or not complaining, noting, whatever we want to say, that there is not uh, enough uh, philosophy or sort of understanding what's going on. Um, and finally, I think there's two passages here that get a little bit to the philosophical underpinning. So the first one is Tanarabanan, right? First Brisa, Azazel. What does the word Azazel mean, right? And we know that it means Sheye Az Vikashat. So it means that when the goat is pushed, it should be rough and hard. Again, really speaking to sort of how dramatic and sort of not pleasant this was, what happens to the goat. Yehovah Yeshuv, right? I might have thought that it should be sort of in a settled area. Tamud Lamar, Bamidbar. No, but the Pasuk that talks about it says it needs to be in the wilderness. Minayin Shabitsok. How do we know that it needs to be off a cliff? Tamud Lamar, Gizera. He uses the word Gizera, which means something sharp, which would mean a cliff. Tanya Idah, right? We also learned if you turn another Brisa, Azazel, Kashesha Beharim, right? It means the hardest mountain. And so here they quote a Pasuk from Yechazkel chapter 17, verse 13, right? The mighty, the Eli, right, of the land he took away. So Azazel is interpreted as Azael, right? Another, another, you know, meaning something that's hard. And it's based on the use of this word from this pasuk. Tana Devei Rabbi Shmuel. Rabbi Shmuel comes, and what does he say? Well, the school of, of Rabbi Shmuel comes and says, Azazel shemechaper that the Azazel atones for the actions of Uza and Aziel. So these are the names of. Uh, there's a couple different commentaries of what this is. That these are like demon angels, or these were the sons of God who sin with the daughters of men, look up in, you can see this in Bereshi chapter six, um, but it's interesting to see, and, and then this leads to the flood. What I find interesting about this interpretation is, is that we think of Yom Kippur as very much being like, how do we as Jews, as the Jewish nation, get kapara? And even the vidui that the Kohen Gadol does is, uh, you know, it's all about Beiti, B'nai Aharon, Yisrael. There's no mention, it's not universalistic doesn't mention all the people on earth. Yet the sin here that, you know, uh, that uh, the Beit Midrash of, of Rabbi Shmuel wants to talk about is one that goes back to even before Abraham. It goes back to the time of Noah 
and it's really a universal sin. So I thought that was fascinating to me and that for the first time, I think we're seeing a universalism in a theme about Yom Kippur, one that we have not seen before. That's interesting. Thank you for pointing that out. Okay, I'll move on then. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting when I saw it. I, I do think it's more. interesting. I don't think of him. I I think of Rosh Hashanah as more universalistic, right? And exactly. not Yom Kippur. But this, but this, but you're saying specifically the Azazel is there to give kapara for a sin that's not Jewishly related. So I find that fascinating. And then they quote another brace. So also that has to do with the Azazel. Tanarabanan et mishpatei tasu. So here they're quoting Pasuk in Bayikra, chapter eighteen, verse four, where it says, "You should do my mishpatim, my you know my laws." Right, so these laws, these mishpatim are things that had they not been written, right, it would have been logical that they would be written, right? These are things that logically people should be able to deduce are not ways, are not things to do. And what are they? Right, so idol worship, prohibited sexual relationships, bloodshed, theft, and when they say blessing God, it's a euphemism for saying to curse God. So these are things that sort of like, if you're a God-fearing person, you would just logically be able to know you should not be able to do that. This is sort of like a universal ethical morality. But then the Pasuk goes on and says, Ed you should keep my chukim, my statutes. Now, again, I'll use this as a nice nistar, as my father, Zichon always talked about. This week is Parshat Chukat, which has the sort of, uh, you know, the the chok the there that's talking about is the one of Paraduma, which is always used as the example of the uh, shining example of what a chok is, right? So these are things that the satan would cha- challenge, meaning these are misvot that are totally illogical. There's no way to understand why we would have to do them. And what are these? Not eating pork. Not wearing shotness. Right, that's the the mixing of uh, wool and linen. doing the chalitza ceremony with the yavama. Right, so a woman, widow who needs to marry, who did not have children with her first husband, and then would marry the brother of that first husband. If the brother does not want to marry her, they do this ceremony called chalitza, where they take a shoe and they're spitting, and it's a very strange ceremony, and it actually does not make a lot of sense. Bitarat um, mitzora, the the purification ceremony for somebody who has left Prez And the last one is the scapegoat. Now, I find this interesting because it's basically saying what we do, the process of atonement, and maybe it's saying the fact that God forgives us altogether is illogical. It's nothing that you could deduce. Right? And if you would say that these are meaningless acts, again, notice they're using a creation word here. So again, there's something to me that's universalistic about this b'risa, right? Tamud lamar, ani Hashem, it says, I am Hashem. Meaning, ani Hashem chakaktiv, ve'en l'chavashu l'harher v'hem. I am Hashem, and therefore I'm allowed to decree these type of chukim, and you have no right to doubt them at all. So, you know, I think these are very nice passages. I'm, I'm sure I will eventually work them into some of our Torah at some point. But both of them, have some type of, you know, uh, theme that, you know, I, I think that word tohu is very interesting. It harks back to Bereshit. Um, but it's saying that there's something about doing these illogical things uh, that, you know, 
there's something fundamental about that to, to our experience on earth and our relationship with God, not necessarily specific to being Jewish people. Um, yes, yes. I think that it's true. I actually have been waiting for us to get to Chukat because we've been talking about the Paraduma for so long. And I think that this, you know, um, venturing into philosophy is, it was like kind of lying just under the surface, which I think, you know, you kept saying it's not here, it's not here. But I think then when you, when we get here, then look, at, look, it's so easy for you to talk about because it's really been there, you know, for, like lying in wait for us, as it were. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, so I just wanted to point out these two different, these, you know, three different prices they have here. Finally, I'll just conclude this episode with the Mishnah. So we have another Mishnah here, which sort of continues on what happens after the goat. And now we sort of go back to, you know, if this was a movie, so the camera would pan out from the avoda of the Kohen Gadol. We would take the scapegoat on his journey. Then we would go back to what is going on in the, uh, in, uh, the Beit HaMikdash, right? So the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, is now going to come next to the bull and gold that we did all the sprinkling with, Karan. He tears open their flesh, basically. And he takes out just the parts that need to be burnt on the Mizbeach. Then he puts them in a large bowl and he burns them on the altar. Now, that burning actually does not take place until much, much later. But the idea is that he sets them aside at this point. He takes what's left over the carcasses, the bull and the goat, and he sort of breeds them together, and that's how they will be burned. His clothes also become tummy. And when does that happen? Right? Sorry, it's not necessarily the Kohen Gadol. Whoever takes it, excuse me, to the Beta Sreifa. So when does that happen? And that's directly from a Pasuk in Vayikra, chapter 16, verse 28, that the person who burns the animals needs to also wash their clothes. Right? It's from the second they go out of the temple courtyard. Rabbi Shimon Amir Misha Yatsita or Biruban. Rabbi Shimon says it's when the fire is ignited as as consumed most of the bull and the goat. And again, you know, when you read this description of the two animals that you sort of rip open the carcass and you take out the parts that you have to burn and then you intertwine the bodies, there's also something very brutal about it. And so it's interesting that sort of the two people involved with the brutality of the day, right? The Azazel and 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 you know finishing up these two korbanot, they are the ones whose bigadin whose clothes become tummy. Um, I think your explanation earlier applies perfectly here. Like there can't be any, it, it's, it's too much for there to be no impact. So even if the impact is only on the clothes, that counts, right? Like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it would be fair to, to say that the people themselves, the coin Gadol here is not becoming tummy, but his clothes, you know, like it, it, and the, and the ECT, the guy who goes out to the, to the wilderness, likewise, meaning he he can't, it would not be fair, I would say, to put him outside of the camp, right, Alf, after his day. But his clothing, we can't, you know, like, there's a recognition of the impact. Right, exactly. Uh, it, it, and I think, you know, we've been seeing some things, Anne and I, like on Facebook groups and things like that, where people sort of commenting on how brutal this day feels. And there's something about these clothes becoming tummy that I think sort of acknowledges that and reflects that. Exactly. 
Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Ring us, review us on all major podcasts. Please sign up for our Masacha Yuma Siam, which is coming up, God willing, on July 11th. The registration link is out on our WhatsApp group and our Facebook page or email one of us if you need it. Uh, thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.